This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, beauty so bright, you gotta wear shades. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review podcast that's putting the humanities back into sci-fi sometimes. Sometimes I haven't had time to research fun things. I, I think we'll have lots of humanity in this episode today, so. My name is Gep, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched Star Trek Original Series episode, Is There In Truth No Beauty? These are very long names. Yes. <laughs> that is kind of the thing that uh, Original Series did. Uh, you know, it's kind of expanded out, you know, from where no man has gone before to this one to, uh, you know, I think uh, some other episodes that happened later this season. Um, uh, let this uh, that be your last battlefield's pretty long um you know <laughs> we've got things that are that are book quotes we've got shakespearean quotes this is from an old poem called jordan by george herbert oh so not buckethead no this episode was written by a newcomer and in fact, this is what her first ever TV writing gig, one of only two, both of which were Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Also did All Our Yesterdays. Oh, it was written by Jean Arasset. Yeah, that's about as good as I could pronounce it too. <laughs> she was a librarian who sent several unsolicited scripts into the Star Trek writing staff. This one was picked up as well as, as you said, a story that was later used in all of our yesterdays. I suspect one of the reasons may have been because this one was really cheap to do. Well, I don't know how much the special effects would have been. There are some special effects. I I will say I kind of like this one, but yeah. I don't know. It's not bad as the things go. (laughs) Yes. We only have two significant guest stars this week. Uh, Deanna... Mulder, who we are seeing again. This is her second appearance on Original Trek. She mm-hmm. played Dr. Mulhall in Return to Tomorrow. And, of course, later she will play Dr. Pulaski on Next Generation. Indeed. She plays three doctors, all of them different. <laughs> I mean, this one, I guess, it makes sense, because she would have had a heck of a time explaining how she got back from this to be Dr. Pulaski. I guess still technically possible, but it also kind of requires some other things to be changed with future Dr. Pulaski going on there. But anyway. Also, David Frankham, who plays Larry Maverick. He is an English actor who worked with the BBC before moving to America. He was in all of the 60s TV shows, including Beverly Hillbillies, Outer Limits, also, all of the movies just all over. One of the most notable ones people might be familiar with is he was the voice of Tibbs the Cat in 101 Dalmatians, the oh, original yeah. animated one. Back in the day. Not the live action one or the inevitable remake of the live action one. Oh, the future is going to be awkward. <laughs> They're already, let's see, 101, then there was 102, so that's. 203 and then he had another 101 so you're up to 304 
I think there was another one. So we're up to about 500 Dalmatians at this point. That's too many Dalmatians, I think. That doesn't even count the parents. Maybe it's like multi-generational stuff going on here, and Corello de Villa just gets reincarnated and has to suffer for all eternity. <laughs> In every generation, there are Dalmatians. <laughs> At least a hundred of them. <laughs> all right, I feel like we should we should jump in before this turns into a Disney show. Okay. <laughs> the Enterprise is preparing to bring aboard two passengers. One is Larry Maverick, who is one of the original designers of the Starship Enterprise. And the other one is Kolos, a Medusan, which is a life form so strange and ugly to humans that seeing one will drive a person insane. And even other species with more mental discipline, such as Vulcans, can only view them through a special red visor. Yeah, they seem pretty intense. First, they beam aboard good old Larry. He's referred to as Larry in the episode, and I just thought that was hilarious. So I'm going to keep calling him Larry. Hey, Larry, what's up? I'm sorry for anyone with that name, but it's just a name that you cannot use in a serious context. He runs off with Scotty to go play with engines or something that engineers do. So, you know, he's out of the way. Yeah, we, we want to establish that you exist. Now, moving on. <laughs> they clear the decks in order to bring aboard Colos, including everyone out of the transporter room and everyone out of the halls, except for Spock and his special visor, because he's the only one that can handle it. But instead of beaming aboard a Lovecraftian-like horror from beyond time and space, they beam aboard a medium-sized box and a dark-haired woman. You know, as you do. She is wearing a slightly odd net-like dress and speaks for Kolos because she is Dr. Miranda Jones, a human telepath who is telepathically linked with Kolos to be the voice piece of the ambassador. Cool. I guess this also means we don't have a, a box that talks at people now. In fact, Kolos doesn't talk at all. Just kind of hides in his box for most of the episode. Which I forgot about, and I wasted 15 minutes trying to find a voice actor credit. They carry the ambassador in a box to his quarters, and on the way, we learn some expositionary stuff about how Spock and Dr. Jones were low-key rivals, and Spock actually turned down her position to work with Colas and the Medusans. Oh, there's a mystery there. She also gets super jealous when Spock asks to greet the ambassador. This is a That's awkward. theme. Yes. And when he leaves, she removes her visor, looking directly at Kolos, and demands to see what Spock saw. Wait a moment. Isn't she supposed to be going mad at this point? Yeah. Oh my god, she can look directly at the Medusan for some reason. Very, very mysterious. Later on, she, Spock, Kirk, Scotty, and McCoy, along with Larry, are having a dinner party. Candlelight supper. Kirk and McCoy are very characteristically creepy at Dr. Jones, with... General, like, oh, did it hurt when Star Trek lets you have an assignment because you're an attractive woman and we shouldn't let attractive women do things, cause, but, but it's fine because now I get to leer at you, so I'm glad you got an assignment even though we shouldn't be letting women work after all. These guys are just too much sometimes. But here we learn that Dr. Jones was born a telepath, so she went for training on Vulcan in order to control her abilities and be able to block out the thoughts of others. And she is going to the Medusan home planet in order to mind link with Kolos, which is a way of both of them becoming one mental being that just happens to share a couple bodies. It's, yeah, it's a, a network approach to uh, consciousness. 
Also, the reason Larry is here is because the Medusans have mastered space navigation in a way that humans are just not capable of, and they're trying to find a way to allow them to navigate Federation starships. So you can get a Medusan on board, and you can, like, plug them into the system, and it it's like a navigation computer. Hmm. What if... But, but maybe we should do this with dolphins or something else instead. Hmm. Like, if you had dolphins in some sort of giant submarine to use as navigators, <laughs> and maybe you had a network of weird water tubes that let it wander around the ship. Yeah. <laughs> and a precocious teenager that was his best friend. And something about Darwin, right? <laughs> I got exactly one episode into that show. It was a, it was a kooky one. Uh, we're talking about Sequest, if anyone's confused. <laughs> At the dinner, there's also a whole thing that Spock's wearing a Vulcan symbol, and Jones is like, oh, you wore that to make fun of me somehow. And he's like, no, I wore a thing to honor you and your training or some such but the entire vulcan symbol thing was written in by roddenberry so that he could sell the things so basically irrelevant yeah this is a, a formal setting where everyone's dressed up nicely and we have to have this product placement here now great <laughs> near the end of the dinner jones suddenly says she senses murder someone trying to murder spock now again maybe but then it goes away and she leaves no one seems to mind. Yeah, it's like, well, I, I guess that's just something that happens sometimes with telepaths, I guess. Everything's fine. Don't worry. No one's going to get murdered today. <laughs> Everybody left takes turns saying exactly one sexist thing about her and then leaving. These guys, seriously. This was like one of the worst written scenes for any of this. It was awful. Larry later shows up in Dr. Jones's room and begs her not to go with Kolos because they are in love. But she's like, no, we ain't. Like, I told you already, I'm doing this and just let me do it. We talked about this already. Go away. Yeah, Larry can't take no for an answer and he gets really creepy here. She then realizes that it was he who was thinking of murder and says, don't murder people. That would be wrong. Let me give you help if you need it. And he goes, no, and runs away. Larry, you asshole. He heads directly to Kolos's room, but before he can pull out his phaser, the box opens and he sees so much green that he screams and grabs his head and jumps around the room a bit. It drops his phaser and he's completely sensory overloaded now. He runs off toward engineering where Scotty thinks he's there for them to have fun engineer time, so he gives over the controls to the ship with absolutely no questions asked. You seem like a level-headed fellow. Here, have full control of the engines here, and uh, don't do anything nutty. Kirk and a security detail show up in Kolos's room. How they found out about this, we don't know, but fine. I mean, I guess I appreciate them not having an unnecessary scene where someone reports this. Yeah, Brand, I'm guessing, just reported or something like that. Yeah, Larry was feeling wacky, and he ran off, so I want to go check on things. Here, Dr. Jones informs them about Larry, but it's too late to warn Scotty because Larry punches him and sends the ship into high warp. Like 9.5 crazy high warp. Kirk and the guards finally manage to subdue him, but as soon as they do, he keels over dead. I guess this is what happens when you see a Medusa and you... You go so crazy that you die. But not before you figure out how to make the engines break through the, uh, you know, barrier at the edge of the galaxy again. They do that a lot. Yeah. 
Wait, does this mean everyone's going to have psychic powers now again? McCoy even later says something about uh, they're like, oh, he died because he couldn't handle what he saw. McCoy goes, no, he couldn't handle what he feels. Hmm. Sure. He was so crazy in love. I I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, the stuff he did to the ship sent them so far outside of the galaxy that they're in a weird, wibbly, bibbly blue void with no point of reference. So they can't navigate. It's like that one episode of TNG where the uh, traveler shows up, except different. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is not how being outside the galaxy works. You'd still be able to see the galaxy. The galaxy, <laughs> yes. And all those other galaxies that we you know, can see from Earth. Yes. <laughs> so this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I guess also 60s science fiction, they probably didn't know much about the actual science and certain things. Like what? What even is a galaxy? The, it's it's just an ocean. Space is just the ocean, and we have to deal with it. So we've gone off the edge of the map. They cross to the equator, and now all the stars are different, and everyone's confused. <laughs> they decide that the only way to get out of this situation is to use Kolos's superior navigational abilities, but he can't fly the ship because he's a shapeless space blob. Can't even hook up his box. So Spock needs to mind link with him in order to operate the controls. They decide that Dr. Jones would not like this, so they have to distract her so Spock can do the mind link before she notices. Mm-hmm. This is about the time that, that I was going, oh no. Yep. I know how they're going to distract her and I don't like it. Kirk, what are you doing? What are you doing, Kirk? Kirk takes Jones to the fun romantic times big flower room. Here, have some flowers. She smells flowers and touches flowers and pokes herself on a thorn rose. Yeah, like you do. You have to have some allusion to Shakespeare when you talk about beauty and roses and things like that. But she's incredibly unimpressed with Kirk trying to seduce her and senses what Spock is trying to do immediately. She's like, I'm not putting up with this crap. Um... Kolos, what's up? Oh, my dear. (laughs) She is understandably furious and insists that she mind Link because she was the one that was going to do that. And she can learn to fly the stupid ship just as well as anyone. But then McCoy goes, no, you can't. A blind woman can't fly a spaceship. Dun, dun, dun. Also, why? What? Like The whole point is they can't see anything. You wouldn't even be flying by what you can see in the first place, but the entire point of the situation is that they can't see anything. So who cares? I guess Kolos can navigate what's around the ship, but not on the console? See, this is just, this ticked me off, because there's an episode of Voyager where Tuvok goes blind, and he sits down at the console and says, Activate tactile interface. And that's it. Apparently at this point in the future, they didn't think about adding accessibility controls to the ship. Which is uh, kind of a failing of, uh, I guess, foresight on, on multiple uh, you know, levels here. Both meta and, you know, in-universe. In so everyone's super shocked that she's blind. For some reason, instead of it being that she's, you know, telepathic, so she doesn't, she can use that as her extra sense instead of needing to see, she actually has a the weird dress is a net of sensors that she uses to navigate without being able to see because we needed to add another thing <laughs> it's basically Jordy's visor before Jordy's visor it's exactly that so i guess that at least there's some precedent stuff i still was just like oh that makes sense because she's telepathic 
Mm-hmm. So she can use maybe other people's senses to kind of get an idea of what's going on around. Oh no, sensor net. The, the uh, you know, using telepathy to see uh, is actually a, a great thing that pops up in uh, Darths and Droids. Actually, <laughs> if uh, anyone's unfamiliar, it's a uh, screen cap comic of Star Wars when they were doing Rogue One. Uh, the uh, the character you know playing the bl- the blind guy. Uh, his familiar is the uh, his partner there. And he uses that telepathic connection in order to see what's up while having the flaw blind, which gives a bunch of bonus points. Yeah, take <laughs> note, D&D people. <laughs> she still says that she can do it anyway. Of course she could. Mm-hmm. So she goes into Colos's room, but I guess they try to mind link, but she screams. So I guess she can't. They're very, very unclear with this. She goes to the room and screams and comes out and goes, guess not. I think the uh, the question was, you know, maybe we should ask Kolos what, what he thinks about all this. And she's like, okay, fine, I guess, and goes in there. And then, I guess, gets upset when he says no, I guess. They bring Kolos to the bridge and put him behind two-thirds of a cubicle so that no one can see him. Everyone's really excited about this. Spock puts on the visor and mind links with Kolos, and they both seem to be having great fun. Kolos likes being out of the box... But they have work to do, and they easily find their way back to the galaxy with absolutely no problems. Mm-hmm. Kolos monologues about how great it is to see and feel and have human senses with this interesting body, but Kirk is like, nope, back in your box, you. You're smiling too much, you're too happy, this isn't the Spock we know, oh god! He agrees, but not before another speech about how lonely humans are because we're all stuck in our own bodies. I guess the Medusans are generally used to having multiple... You know, mindlings constantly? They're the precursor to the Borg, oh god! (laughs) Spock Kolos goes back to dissolve the mindlink, but Spock forgot to put on the visor and now he's insane. Uh, I guess you're writing him out of the show then. Um, laters. He attacks Kirk and passes out. Uh, As you do. I full on, I just, I just full on thought that this was just the build up to the, to the resolution. Like, you had the problem, you solved the problem. Oh, look, another problem. There's, how, there's 10 minutes left in this episode. We have to have a, one more complication. <laughs> they take Spock to sickbay and have Dr. Jones use her mental abilities to try to help him. But Kirk gets all weird and confronts her because he thinks that she doesn't actually want to save Spock because she's all jealous and it's made her a horrible person. And that's why Carlos weren't linked with her because she's full of jealousy and hate because, you know, jealousy leads to... Anger leads to hate leads to the dark side. Kirk, I think you're full of crap this episode. (laughs) When Kirk leaves, Jones tells Spock that she needs to save him even if it kills both of them. And then she grabs his head even more forcefully than she grabbed his head before. And then he grabs her head. I guess that makes him better. Two could play at this game, Miranda. Ha ha! We're grabbing each other's heads now. Um, I'm, I'm better. Later on, Spock's better. He's at the transporter. They have Kolos back in his box. Jones is now mind-linked with Kolos, so she's all happy that Kirk yelled at her and got her over her weird jealous thing. And the jealousy thing is, it, I, I see where they're trying to build it up at points, but it, it's still just really weird. They say the Vulcan goodbye and beam off the ship. Yeah, peace and long life, live long and prosper, now get off my ship! Off they go. I'm also pretty sure this episode contains one of the only He's Dead gems. In the entire series, I noticed that it's also one of the early time, one of the few times that they do any of the Vulcan things on this show, despite how famous it becomes later. These people do pick up on these things. You know, they can 
and get enthusiastic and they get it, you know, and they, when it pops up again, they get uh, excited again. All right. There's a lot of little things to unpack here. Obviously, they're still treating people with disabilities pretty badly. Indeed. Because, like, she had to pass for sighted in order for anyone to take her seriously. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a shitty thing to do, folks. Uh, you know, people, they can have disabilities, just FYI. And they don't have to pretend they don't have them. Except you kind of do the way we treat people. Because there's this thing that we keep doing around people with disabilities. that Any kind of disability, physical, mental, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're fine as long as you can keep doing stuff as if you didn't have one. If you need to live differently or have certain kinds of things to help you navigate around or whatever like it's okay to a certain extent as long as we can keep pretending that everything's normal that's when we run into problems is when when someone's acting in such a way that makes us notice that they are disabled or have something different even if the thing that they're doing is actually helping them function better Mm -hmm. there's actually these stories that are going around uh, specifically about children who are either born blind or lose their sight very early in life, there's, there's a really, really common thing where they will start clicking. And it's actually sort of a... Uh, you could compare it to echolocation as far as it's been described by, uh, late, by like people who did this and were allowed to continue doing it into adulthood. They create a clicking sound with their mouths and then... You know, the way that the sound sounds gives you some idea of what your immediate surroundings are like, like how close walls and things are to you. you know, just a little bit, you know, the human ears are more sensitive than people like to give us credit for. Uh, and so, you know, the, being able to tell those differences in the sound, even if they aren't going to be as, you know, fantastic as, say, a bat, it is still something people can uh, pick up on and learn. Yeah, and it's, of course, not going to give you perfect navigation, but it is something, and... People who do this say that it helps them navigate the world better and more easily, even though they don't have sight. But in schools and places, even ones that are supposedly like specifically geared towards blind children, kids are told to stop doing it because the teachers find it annoying and abnormal. Yeah, that's not that's that's not a good thing, folks. The uh, teachers. I guess should be taught better on this. Um, but maybe it's one of those, uh, also one of those situations where it's sort of people are only kind of now becoming aware of that. Is that, I, I, you probably, you've done more research on this than I have. Yeah. Well, like people are only like, there's a few advocates for it who are usually also blind and use this to get around. There's at least one person who uh, teaches people how to do this. And uh, I believe that he claims to be able to ride a bicycle this way. It's fantastic, you know. But yeah, this this is just one easy to see example, especially since we're dealing with a blind character in this episode. But it's just mm-hmm. if this is something that people can do very easily, it seems to be something that even more or less occurs, uh, for lack of a better term, naturally. Like this is something that that multiple blind children have been reported doing without being taught. So it's a pretty natural way that people use to try to get around having this disability. And because it is abnormal, we don't let people do it because it's okay for you to 
have a disability and not be like everyone else as long as you still act exactly the same way that someone who doesn't have the disability does. This unsettlingness that the the rest of the world has is something that we sort of collectively need to be working on because it really is unfair to folks with disabilities. It is, and it gets to a point where you are actively preventing people from being able to get around better. Mm -hmm. This expectation that we put onto people is preventing a certain level of adjustment. I've talked to people about this in the same kind of way with mental health. Like we, we talk about mental health now a lot, and we talk about how it's okay to have various kinds of mental health problems because they've developed a particular stigma. But no matter what, you still have to act in the same way as other people. You're allowed to talk about having depression, but you can't exactly do things that might help you manage the depression better because you're still expected to do the same amount as someone who isn't depressed. Um, uh, Recently, I've been uh, myself dealing with uh, some anxiety issues and sort of figuring out how to manage that uh, better has been a bit of a learning experience for me. And it is made doing certain things more difficult. And some, you know, and I used to be, you know, just, you know, I guess as sociable as anybody else, but there are, uh, I'm finding that there is more times where I sort of hit a hard limit of, I need to sort of get out of the situation. And that's going to be, and that can be sort of off putting for folks where I'm like, suddenly I need to go right now sort of stuff. Like, is there something wrong? It's like, yes, but don't be concerned about it because this is my thing. And but even even discussing this is now putting me on edge. So yes, yeah, see, being able to do something that would legitimately help yourself, like someone who's anxious might need to avoid or get out of a certain social situation, or someone who's depressed might legitimately not have enough energy to go out and do something with a friend. Mm-hmm. But if you say that to someone, like imagine that you have a friend who's depressed and they say, no, sorry, I can't do this thing even though I'm interested because I'm just de- too depressed today and it's too much energy. You might understand it, but it's going to be really worrying, mm-hmm. weird, and you might feel like you need to go check on the, up on them or impose some extra help or just something. It can't just be, you know, normal. It's exa- It's not exactly normal, and it shouldn't be treated as if it's 100% normal, because of course things like that can be signs of other things going on. But we've created, like, we haven't really removed the stigma of the signs of depression and other kinds of mental illness. We're saying we're removing stigma from the illnesses themselves. Saying that you have depression or anxiety is supposed to be something that we don't stigmatize anymore, but we still stigmatize having it. We just don't stigmatize saying that you have it. You know, the uh, the idea versus the practice. How people are interacting in the world is still disconnected from the ideal of we're going to treat everybody cool now. Yeah, because these things are still going to cause you to act differently because you're going to need to act differently in order to cope with your situation that is different from other people's situations. But when you act differently from other people, we stigmatize that. So you have to be able to act as normal as possible. And especially in cases of something like anxiety or depression, that extra pressure of having to act normal often exacerbates the symptoms that you have. And it gets into this whole big mess. People sometimes have run into folks where they, you know, basically we react the worst possible way. I was like, 
oh, if you're going to be depressed or anxious or you know, so, you know something else going on, it's ruining it for the rest of us. And that's really not helpful, guys. Yeah, that's weird. That's silly. Yeah. I'd question why people need everyone around them to be enjoying things the same way in order for them to enjoy it. Indeed. Did they really enjoy the thing in the first place? Or is this more of a, I need everyone else to be having fun so that I feel like I'm having fun too? Maybe some deeper stuff there. (laughs) Uh, I I guess it's another sort of, I guess, tangential thing is uh, I'm a bit of a super taster. Uh, and this is something I've had my my entire life, and it means that going out to eat with folks has always been a struggle for me. Uh, and it is a, a thing where my senses get overloaded if I encounter certain tastes, and it you know f- some foods become painful. In fact, it's you know it's so overwhelming. But because I have this, and I sort of manage my uh, food stuff in a very certain way, it cuts me out of a lot of opportunities. And when I run into, when I, you know, get to know folks and they sort of get to understand that aspect of me, uh, they're much more easy to work with as far as, you know, having a, you know, the the social situations move forward in such a way that, you know, I can enjoy myself as well as everybody else. But there are other times where I, I actively feel that I'm being sort of a burden on folks because of this. And it gets kind of annoying having to feel that like that. But uh, I also know that if I try to constantly do this, it also turns away people, even that are people that are really accepting. And that's it's kind of my own experience there. It's 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 hard to sort of navigate through all of this. Yeah, and especially something like that when we've centered so many of our social interactions around food, mm-hmm. which is nice in a way because we've always had communal eating. I don't know. It's even like dietary restrictions. I've known a lot of people who have lactose intolerance or I have a friend who's vegetarian. You just, I don't know. It's always been weird to me that people get so miffed about it. Like it often is a little bit difficult for us to all eat out as a friend group because we have like some, like one friend who has certain dietary restrictions, but then we all just work with it and find a place everyone can enjoy it all it does is add an extra 10 minutes to your restaurant hunt uh i I guess in some ways i kind of wish there's more restaurants with wider varieties so the people that want to get like chinese food can hang out with people that want something completely different (laughs) i guess that's why everyone's ordering in nowadays yeah (laughs) i guess that's why uber eats is a thing now (laughs) So the other thing that kind of stood out for me with this episode is something that you see pop up a lot, uh, even now, uh, especially in a lot of older media, but it's still around. And it's this idea that there is something that you could see that would immediately drive you irrevocably insane. Very Lovecraftian here. It is kind of Lovecraftian, but it's an interesting idea if you look at it and you look at how it's kind of changed as our concepts of mental illness and what causes it have sort of evolved, the basic thing that you could equate this to would be what we would now think of as trauma. Mm-hmm. That you've seen something really, really horrible, and now it is affecting how you think and behave. Caused, a, for lack of a better term, a, a series of short circuits so that the, the the memory, the experience there is actively causing shifts in how you, you know, you sort of perceive the world and how you sort of react to things. And there's a couple of interesting things to look at with this. The one is that in every case of this that you usually see in media, 
it's immediate and irreversible. Mm-hmm. So it's basically goes back to the kind of much, much older ideas of a insane person where something would happen. You would see something or possibly something would happen to you that would just make you break. Uh, mostly people would only ever think of stuff as a psychotic break, no matter what it was. You know, someone in your family would say, oh, you're insane because you read too much or you saw this one thing. And then they'd put you in a mental institution And then regardless of whether you were unwell when you went in there, it's a very, very, very bad environment back then. So you would either stay unwell or become unwell, and then you're just stuck there forever. Suffering forever because no one wanted to give you the time to sort of work your stuff out. Which is in some ways where it seems like, I'm just kind of making my own theories here, but it seems like that is where a lot of our ideas of kind of permanent insanity come from. Mm-hmm. There are definitely certain things like we would think of something, say, uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, that seems to be like a permanent condition insofar as it's something that's always going to be there for you. How much it affects your life and how much you can manage it kind of differs. So we're at a point where it doesn't like lock you away forever. But as far as things that affect you externally go... Uh, as far as I can see, looking at this, the idea of that permanently affecting you would be linked back to a lot of the older institutionalization that we used to do to people. Mm-hmm. And then even with that, it's interesting to look at something older like this, where it's a, it's always an external force that then affects you. You would be fine unless you're fine until you see this horrible thing, and then you're not fine. I, I think that one of the reasons that this sort of switch has sort of been popularized in media is because it is kind of comes off as one of those uh, really spooky threats sort of thing. And it helps sort of perpetuate this sort of bad idea on it. Yeah. Well, it is the fear of mental illness, which uh, you, we've both mentioned that this is a very kind of Lovecraftian theme and you can tell looking at the Lovecraftian style themes that the fear of insanity kind of permeates that whole idea, the entire Lovecraftian sort of horror aspect is that you as a sane person are kind of on this razor thin edge. And if you know too much in either direction, you're just going to fall off into insanity. The the infinite abyss is all around you, so don't don't slip up at all. Now, the way that that has kind of shifted now in the way we talk about mental health and mental illness, uh, it's become slightly less external. Even though trauma theory is becoming more and more prevalent, which would be, you know, external things happening to you to cause trauma reactions, a lot of how we think about mental illness has turned internal. You'll have uh, theories that look at things like genetics, and uh, they always use kind of the words susceptibility. So the idea is that the person is more or less susceptible because of genetics or something. And then when they see or experience the horrible thing, the thing that was already inside of them gets activated by that. It's uh, setting up a, a mechanism that can be activated through this sort of stimulus. But it's still like basically some sort of permanent thing now. 
as it was then. The only difference is like now it was always inside of you. The other one, everyone's basically fine. And it's the people who people who experience these horrible things have problems. Now, everyone could experience the horrible thing, and only certain people who have the susceptibility would have the problem. Probabilities and chances here. It's not going to be a guaranteed thing. It is going to be a, if you, if you have the susceptibility, you are more likely to have it than someone who does not. Which, of course, we've always had to a certain extent, because you have the whole, you know, weak-minded or strong-willed ideas. But uh, in older stuff, that sort of thing was implied to be more of a sort of aspect of your character. It was like you spent time honing yourself to become strong-willed. It wasn't like something you were innately born with, I guess, only insofar as that was like a character trait that you became a strong-willed person. But that's something that it's implied that you can and should change, which does lead to a certain amount of shaming when you have something like that, of you are weak-willed and this thing affects you. So in one way, it's better for that to think of it as something that is more innate, like genetics. But on the other hand, something that is more innate, like genetics, does mean that there's less that you, we as a community, believe that you could do about it to help. So you hit problems on both ends here maybe we should you know stop stigmatizing it once again <laughs> so that you know we'll when these things you know, independent of the, the the cause of these specific mechanisms that we are treating people fairly and helping them get the help they need yeah it's a very difficult thing and i've thought about this before when people say that they aren't stigmatizing something doesn't like that should probably mean that you're like not obligated to fix it. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, things like this cause problems for people's lives. So, you know, they want to change the way that it's causing problems. But if you talk about not stigmatizing something, you're basically saying that it's okay. So you won't be under such an obligation to change and help it and act like everyone else. So when people say something like we're destigmatizing depression, it just doesn't make any sense. You're trying to, to stop shaming people who have depression, which is a really good first step. Mm-hmm. Definitely a, a better outcome. But if you're saying something like you're destigmatizing, that means that you're saying that it's okay. And something being okay means you stop being under an obligation to fix it. And I guess that is where I get into a problem. When you talk about this kind of thing, it can make it sound like I am saying that you shouldn't try to help people who are in bad situations because of the way that I talk about it being destigmatized and the help aspects. But maybe it is an important thing to say there's not an obligation to fix it. Because when you're depressed or anxious or have other things going on with you, adding an obligation that you need to do something about it on top of what's already going on, that's just a lot of pressure. Uh, the I, I guess there is the... I guess the two aspects here, the one, you know, saying, you know, for the person who has uh, this condition and the person who does not have the condition and how they are interacting with, with that person. The person that does not have the uh, condition, uh, they should be doing everything they, they can to, you know, help the person, I'm trying to be making sure I'm saying this correctly, as they, you know, you both need and want to be uh, helped. And... They should not be f- feeling that the proper way to do that 
is automatically just to make that other person like themselves. That's not going to work in the long run. Um, and a lot of us are not you know, professionals on this sort of stuff. So if you're not an expert and you need, and you see somebody that does, you know, seem like they need help, you know, make sure they have the opportunity to get that help uh, from someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, well, the main thing that I always say with this sort of thing is one of the best ways that you can help someone is to try to make sure that they have access to as many resources as they need. But also, mm -hmm. even if you're not a professional, you don't need to go in and say, I need to cure my friend's depression or what have yeah. you. We are all trying to just make each other's lives a little bit easier. And that can go for everyone. It doesn't matter if your friend is depressed or not. Your friend could be as normal as a person can be, and we can still all try to make each other's lives easier. Because if we all do that, everyone's lives will be easier. And, you know, we just have to be uh, smart how we do it and, uh, you know, not try to be awkward, I guess, <laughs> in the, uh, you know, uh, intent, you know, try to, you know, force our, the way we see the world uh, fully onto everyone else. Yeah, forcing is always the problem. Yeah. Because I've been, I've been talking to some people who are ch doing some, like, philanthropic things, and you often hit this, this certain sort of person who's like, I tried helping and either people didn't want it or it didn't help, so I'm going to give up on the idea of helping people. It could be a learning experience, but you don't have to give up on trying to help people. Yeah. Maybe the help that you were offering wasn't working for a very specific reason, or you're going about it in a completely you know, unhelpful way, or you know, maybe the people that you were trying to help were not the ones who really needed the help. Well, often... Uh, there's a lot of things can you know, be a factor here. It's really situational. Often you wind up with the kind of thing you're talking about, where if you're trying to force a certain kind of help on someone, that's not really helping someone. That's trying to control someone, mm -hmm. which is not particularly helpful. So if, you know, if you're trying to force it on people, yeah, you just kind of go and wrap out the wrong way. Which, in a way, is what we wind up with at the end of this episode when Kirk runs in to someone who is like for all intents and purposes performing a medical procedure yep <laughs> and proceeds to tough love at her because a man yelling things at you to change is the thing that you need to get your life together i can understand kirk being frustrated because his friends in there not doing so hot but this is really not helping and it's framed in a really kind of awkward way that probably one of the least favorite things about this episode you get to have kirk come out and go oh i don't know if i did that right and then it works so you know yeah. he did <laughs> if you if you see someone who's jealous of another person what you have to do is yell at them and tell them that they're a horrible person for being jealous and that they'll not go to heaven or whatever i really hate it when things like that end up working in episodes all right this has been particularly depressing yes uh i want to talk about beauty for a few minutes sure so beauty uh it's kind of came up to this episode again so uh what do you think about beauty well they have a interesting line where everyone talks about how miranda as the most beautiful woman in the universe apparently is going to spend the rest of her lives her life around the ugliest beings in the universe being the medusans these guys are kind of shallow, you might notice. She had kind of an interesting line of, uh, which I feel like is somewhat muted by the idea that she's blind, but she had kind of an interesting line in here of, who's to say 
whether they are so ugly that people can't bear to look at them, or they are so beautiful that people can't bear to look at them. I like it. I like that. Randa, you're awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because beauty, uh, you know, there's a lot of different sort of philosophical takes on beauty. Uh, you know, being, you know, is it subjective? Is it objective? Uh, you know, is there sort of, you know, you know, a certain mode to it? Is it an ideal of the universe? Is it something tangible you can measure? Is it something that only is a product of, uh, say, romance or appreciation? Or is it, you know, you know, a you know, something that is only for pleasure, uh, potentially? Or is it, or is beauty all about the usefulness of something? Like, yeah, you know, something is only beautiful if it makes sense for it to be doing what it's supposed to be and all sorts of other uh, expansions on this sort of core idea of something seemingly being appreciated, I guess. Uh, and, and so, you know, when she sort of, you know, it's like, you know, they are, you know, you know, the question of, are they so you know ugly or so beautiful? It kind of, you know, sort of thinking about all this stuff here, it's like, well, the Medusans, they seem cool with it. So that last bit about usefulness is probably going to be working for them. Uh, the, the whole, you know, you know, uh, you know, longing and attraction and things like that. Randa seems cool with it. So good on her. Uh, you know, she seems a-okay with Kolos and seems to be really, you know, sort of pulled towards him. So, yeah, in her sort of, uh, interpretation of the situation, he is very much beautiful on that sort of metric. Uh, the, she seems to get, I guess, uh, pleasure from being around him. So also uh, works on that one. As far as the ideal concepts, I'm just going to shrug on that one. I'm I'm going to go with Miranda and uh, say that Kolos is beautiful. I think it's an interesting one. I'm going to move away from philosophy mildly because I didn't do... Go for it. <laughs> I should have, but I didn't do research on beauty philosophy, of which there's a lot. Yes. <laughs> so like, that's why I'm very, very, being very sort of you know, uh, top level here because there's just so much stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, from Aristotle to Kant to Hume and everything in between. So, so beauty uh, keeps being brought up in an evolutionary sense a lot when people talk about it in sort of uh, research areas. And the idea is that as a thing that humans experience we find certain things beautiful and we find certain people attractive because those things are evolutionarily useful to us and so they are things that we are drawn toward. And that's a pretty uh, well-spread theory around especially human-to-human attractiveness. Uh, the problem that you hit with that interpretation is that uh, beauty standards are demonstrably cultural. Indeed. Because different cultures now have different things that they find attractive in each other. Uh, different cultures, even like our culture, like a hundred years ago, we have written records of what people consider to be attractive and beautiful. And it is different than what we would think of as that today. Uh, and even individually, you can see this happen probably with yourself. If you ever met someone who you thought was maybe somewhat attractive or moderately attractive, and then the more you got to know them and liked them as an individual, they became more attractive to you. It is a very, very subjective idea. And obviously, it's going to be a mix 
of some sort of innate thing that we have as humans that came from evolution and emergent patterns in in consciousness and cultural influence on that same thing because most things that deal with humans are but it's a little silly to try to quantify something like this that we can demonstrably see is culturally influenced i I suspect you know you and me probably have uh, different sort of uh, you know, aspects of the world, people, ideas, and everything that we we find uh, beautiful, and uh, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I was I was just earlier today, like sharing like pictures of snakes that I found on a blog with someone. We were both like, "Oh my god, these are beautiful, beautiful, multicolored animals, and they're so cute with the close-ups of their faces." But like, I know people who think snakes are just you know skeevy. And they can't look at them because they just just find something off-putting about them as reptiles. They they are fearful of danger noodles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of that, I know, has to do with how I was raised. Because I grew up in a desert doing a lot of things outside. And my mm-hmm. parents showed me snakes and were like, this is a neat animal. Like, don't touch it, but it's cool. Well, uh, in, in my uh, growing up, not a whole lot of experience uh, with snakes, except uh, like at the zoo. Uh, and like one of the few times uh, encountered a snake in the wild, it was very much, there's grass here and there's something moving next to my feet. So I'm going to freak out. And then sort of after the fact, my brain identifies as a snake. <laughs> like, wait a moment. It's probably just a gardener snake, but you know. And also when you talk about that, that reminded me of just another thing that it does. Very unimportant for, you know, the philosophical storytelling that they're trying to do with this that i always i was also thinking it's an interesting one to look at when you're supposed to have like something so outside of your understanding or norms that like seeing it does something bad to you it's like seeing something that you can't understand or is too horrible for you but like i'm i'm pretty sure just just the way that your eyes and brain work you flat out couldn't see something that you didn't understand like that. Like, it, it would get turned into something that you could, because that's how your eyes work. Yeah, yeah, brains are very good at interpreting data and trying to figure out what the pattern is. And if it is just kind of uh, 404-ing on that, it will do the next best thing, and it's like, well, it kind of looks like a, a cloud, or it looks like dignity. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, but I think that's what it looks like now. <laughs> You have this now. There was this book I was reading. I forget exactly where you find it. But every single person with with like what you would call normal vision has a weird blind spot somewhere just off-center of where your eyes are because it's where all the nerves in the middle of your eye meet. And mm-hmm. you can find it if you kind of know where it is by like holding a book with a little image on it in exactly the right place and all of a sudden the little dot in the book disappears. But you don't experience it as a blind spot because your brain sort of fills in where it is with surrounding stuff. So all of a sudden that like little dot on the piece of paper will disappear, but you don't see it as a hole in the paper. The paper just looks blank now. uh, Your brain's extrapolating the data that it has in order to uh, give your your conscious mind an impression of the full situation. Yeah, there was another interesting thing that I read recently, and then I'll move off this because I'm getting too caught up in the vision topic, but... If you move your eyes very quickly from side to side, you don't really experience a blur as you might expect from, 
you know, panning your vision quickly like that as if it were a camera. So if you do it while you're kind of looking at a clock out of the side of your vision, you can see that actually your perception of visual time freezes for a second and then kind of comes back when you reach the other side of where you're moving so that you don't get a weird disorienting blur. Ah, I, I've noticed that and I didn't know that was a thing that people didn't know. <laughs> so yeah, the idea, I mean, it's kind of just the idea that you as a human can't particularly experience, you know, what one would, I guess, as an external entity be able to conceptualize as objective reality. You can only yeah. see what you see as a person. And we all seem to see something similar, so we can talk about it and work off of that general consensus. But whether it represents an accurate representation of something that's not a human would see if they were looking at the universe, who knows? We're not perfect sensors. We're imperfect, you know, interpreters. And we're doing what we can, but the, uh, you know, if something is just so bizarre that it, we can't, you know, make that conform with how we sort of operate, it will just sort of do its best all the same. <laughs> you know, we will fail epically at looking at it, but it will not destroy us. And maybe it's just made of, maybe the Medusans are just all UV and then, well, you can't see it because... Well, maybe... The Medusans are an exact replica of our internal thought processes, and so it gives us a feedback loop. Maybe that's how it works. <laughs> then you're getting into that weird idea that you can somehow program someone's brain with certain visual and auditory inputs. The, uh, the, the crazy flashy lights to hypnotize people or something. Anyway, there's just a long history of this stuff, but I feel like we've been meandering for a little while. And a little bit. We finally got off of the depressing part of the episode. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> so maybe now it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show, where we've been tallying up all the points and we got some... Uh, Fantastic winners today. In fact, at least one of our winners is hiding in a box. Uh, uh, hope they come out here at some point so we can pick up the prize. Anyway, our first award is the One Mind, One Purpose for Spock and Kolos for coming together to save the ship. What do they win, Jeff? Spock and Kolos win a snazzy new backpack so that not only can they be connected mentally, but he won't have to lug around Kolos in that heavy, heavy, cumbersome box. Indeed, that'll be very useful. It's like a, one of those like a baby carrier things, except a little bit more covering, I You're guess. You're winding up with sort of a Banjo-Kazooie situation. Banjo-Kazooie? Uh, this is sci-fi, so that mixed with Ratchet and Clank, maybe? Hmm. Anyway, the next uh, prize is the TV love story, which goes to Miranda, Larry, Colos, Kirk, Spock, and whoever else Miranda's supposed to be jealous at or something now. But, you know, because... No one has professionals in the future. It's all kind of confusing. Anyway, what Captain, what did this whole group of people win? They win the very own pilot for a 80s sitcom. It's four men, one woman, and one unspeakable horror from beyond the stars. Hmm. I hope it gets picked up for, a th for three seasons at least. Hmm. <laughs> Our final prize is the painful metaphor prize, which goes to those roses of the guards, because they'll cut you, man. They'll cut you. What do they win, Gapwin? They win thornless roses, because it's a thing. 
It's not yep. like a good <laughs> metaphor, but it'd be better to have in space because, like, you know that being pricked by a thorn off on a rose can give you a certain kind of bacteria that can kill you. It happens. Don't put it on your spaceship. So uh, we're more forward-looking than the, the the folks that uh, got this guard set up on the on the Enterprise. Hmm. Well, hopefully uh, they'll not get any bacterial infections. And actually, now I'm thinking about Colas. Can he get even? Can he get sick? Probably. Hmm. Maybe they're. Hmm. What happens if he looks in a mirror? Never mind. <laughs> Take it away, Gepard. Anything else? Yes, thank you all for joining us in this the galaxy's favorite game show. <laughs> Next week is silly. Something about uh, being okay in a corral yeah. or something? It's it's a western. A western? It's going to have all your favorite western characters. The Doc Holidays yeah. and you know, Wyatt Earps. Yep. Yeah. And those other people. Yep. All them. Yep. <laughs> it's apparently I only remember Wyatt Earp and Doc transported Holiday. to the OK Corral of the shootout at the OK Corral. Now, I, I will ding them for their uh, their lack of originality here because Doctor Who already did uh, an OK Corral episode here. <sighs> Star Trek, you're playing catch-up again. <laughs> Everyone did one. Sliders did one. This is just a thing. <laughs> like, I think it's just mandatory that every sci-fi series had to do some version of we, what if we're in the Old West and we shoot each other with six guns. So we're going to have a, a cowboy episode soon. Either going to be time travel or uh, go to a cowboy planet. One of the two. <laughs> I, mean, I suppose it's just wearing its influences on its sleeve, like in Firefly. So Firefly was all kind of this, actually. <laughs> it was, a, yeah. If you're going to make a space western, make put cows in. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> and they can woo at the, uh, at the at the robots. All right, we will find out how this compares to the movie the okay corral i suppose <laughs> next week on watchers of tomorrow next time on watchers of tomorrow till there's blood on the sawdust at the last chance saloon you have been listening to watchers of tomorrow a podcast on science fiction media Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, 
please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>